All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It is already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The question that Ecclesiastes seeks to deal with is what does a man gain for his toil for which he toiled under the sun? It's a book about work. And so when I was asked if I would be part of a men at work conference, uh, the options were either preaching on Colin Hay and his band or for me going for Ecclesiastes. And I need to say I have a few confessions to make today. I'm going to leave the main one till the end, which is to explain why this sermon doesn't, or this talk doesn't actually end, but you'll have to wait to the end to understand why there is no end. But I need to confess that despite the title of Give It a Rest, which is what I've called this talk, I'm going to require you to do some work. You're going to need to think with me today. And part of the reason for that is that it's, we are looking at a book which is a book of wisdom, and wisdom works by us working to think through what the text is telling us. If you read the book of Proverbs, it starts with a, a, a statement about hoping that wisdom will come by working at understanding the text. And we're going to have to do some working today. And secondly, rather than making us feel restful, I need to confess that as you look at Ecclesiastes, it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's designed to make you feel uncomfortable. The book ends by describing the words of the teacher as a goad, that is, a bit of wood with nails stuck in it, which you whack people with. If you've ever wondered what a goad was, it's what you make sheep move with. It's a bit of wood, nails, whacking you. So if you don't feel restful with some of the things that I'm about to say, don't blame me, it's the book. It's what it's designed to do. It's designed to make us feel uncomfortable. And the problem is we don't like 
to be uncomfortable. We like to be comfortable. Our adverts remind us of this. It's always, it never says, you know, buy this product. It's really dodgy and it will make you feel nervous. And anybody think, you don't ever see ads that will do that. They're always security and people walking along beaches and dogs, you know, happily running along with happy children who do tidy their rooms and don't play computer games all day. We like hearing of prosperous futures and taking control of your life and really having everything secure. We would rather hear about such things and face uncomfortable truths, but we know there are uncomfortable truths out there, but in the words of Pink Floyd, it's so easy to become comfortably numb. We just blot it out and think about the guitar solo. Now, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, we will be faced with some uncomfortable truths about a lack of security, a lack of understanding, and a lack of control. Yet, we shall see, I hope, that it is always with the truth. It is a truth that will help set us free. And then we'll think about what this has to say about rest. Now, I have another confession to make. Uh, I love the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I could talk till tomorrow, easily, on the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, to the extent that some of you will want to say at some point during this talk, give it a rest. Like, seriously, uh, I'm not that excited about the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, But there seem to be quite a lot of people who really love the book. It seems to be a book which has become very popular uh, recently, or in the last sort of decades, because of its very dark and existential tone. It, it sounds so modern, it's filled with that sense of existential angst, and it's the kind of book that can be turned, turned, turned into folk songs. Uh, you've got to be a 1960s fan. There'll be music references the whole way through, uh, and there might be a prize if you can get all of them. Uh, but, and people see it as the teacher, with all his investigations, have discovered, and at this one I'd like you to be looking at the back of your uh, uh, program that you got given, that the book is seen as if the, the, the teacher is like the scientist in this Far Side cartoon. That what he is excited about is that he's res- discovered that nothing means anything, or everything means nothing. The universe is pointless, meaningless. That's how most people understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Life doesn't add up to much. Yet, uh, I want to challenge you. Now, at this point, I need to know, I know there are people in the room who are not going to agree with what I'm going to say. Andrew, I know there are people here who won't agree at the moment with what I'm going to say. But I hope by the end you'll have given me a good hearing as to what I'm going to say. I don't have a doctorate because I'm just a humble dean. Uh, uh, But there is some fairly serious research which I'm not going to give you under what I'm going to say. So I hope that's made sense. The first thing is we need to make sure that we understand the book of Ecclesiastes on its own terms in its culture, not on our terms in our culture. That's the first thing we have to get right. And if we start by thinking that the book is a work of modern philosophy, we will misunderstand the book immediately. Now, that's the first reason why I want to say anybody who's got the NIV, please cross out the word meaningless. It's a modern philosophical word. As soon as you see it, you start to think of the book in a particular way. So, 
you'll hear a number of reasons why I think it's a terrible translation. I love the NIV, I just think they get the Ecclesiastes horribly wrong. But first thing I want to say is that's why I don't like the word meaningless as a start. It speaks of 20th century French philosophy, not where the book comes from. So, the first thing we need to do is to start at the beginning, because it is... No sound of music people here at all. We start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. Okay? They're not all going to be good musical references. I didn't say that they would be good references. I just said they'd be there. So it starts. Back in chapter 1, and I don't know if the guy wants to do from verse 1. No, he doesn't. Okay, that's fine. Uh, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. We are told right up front that we are in the realm of Israelite, Israelite wisdom with all that it entails. This is not a modern philosopher or scientist. This is someone of the people of Yahweh brought up in the fear of the Lord. It is a good and true Israelite who is speaking. And we need to understand the book in the context of the faith of Israel. The, the, the beginning tells us that. Then we have the catch cry of the book. And I'm going to use the Hebrew word that sits underneath what is up there as vanity. Hevel, hevel, says the teacher. Utterly hevel. Everything is hevel. Now, the word hevel uh, is an onomatopoeic word. In other words, it sounds something like what it means. And it means mist or vapor uh, or breath. (sighs) Hevel. Okay, that's the word. Okay. And uh, it is proved incredibly difficult to translate. Uh, in my researches, I found 24 different translations uh, of the word hevel. Uh, the most common one is vanity. Other ones are absurd. One of my favourites was bubble. Uh, many seem to me, like the NIV's meaningless, it, it comes with freight that it, the, the book shouldn't have. It's simply not the way that an Israelite would have thought. They are not looking for meaning. They are looking for understanding. I hope you can see the difference between those two concepts. Not what does it, what does it mean, but what's, what, what's the outcome of this? What's the wisdom here? Now, uh, obviously, how you translate Hevel completely determines how, what you do with the book. If you translate it as meaningless, it sets up a fairly, oh my goodness, it's you know, so depressing. Okay. Now, I think more importantly, uh, the way that wisdom literature works normally is by giving you something from nature and you're then supposed to work out what that means. So one of my favourites, a dog to vomit, a fool to folly. That's the literal translation from a verse from Proverbs. Dog to vomit, fool to folly. There's no and, there's no uh, or or anything. There's just two things sitting together and you have to figure out the link between them. Okay. And I would suggest that if that's how wisdom literature works, by people engaging their brain to understand what something means, the best thing to do with translating uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is to leave it as mist or vapour. Don't translate it. Don't, don't, don't interpretively translate it. Just leave it as mist. So what that means is if you have got the NRV, you just drop out the re and you're left with mist. You know, mystery, not mystery or meaningless, just mist. Okay? Now, so uh, we are to look at this, the things that he says, 
And then we go to work out, well, what does he mean by calling everything mist? What does he actually understand? And it's worth pointing out that as you go through the rest of, we can scroll through this pretty quickly, it's all things from nature. Okay? It's, it, it, he doesn't just say, I'm so depressed, I'm so depressed, I'm so depressed. He gives you illustrations of things that for him, as he thinks out what does man gain from his toil, he, he will start to, he, he illustrates it with things from nature. And we're supposed to understand what it means. So, first thing is, uh, I think we should just translate it missed. Vanity's not a bad translation because nobody really understands what that word means and that's, so that's a good kind of word too. Okay, so we're trying to understand what does he mean by calling everything missed or vanity. Okay? Now, we've had, the, we've had the, the scene has been set in the first 12 verses. What does man gain? And you kind of get the idea that the answer is not a lot because everything's circular, everything's happened before, and for any of us, as the older we get, the truer Ecclesiastes versus um, one fought and on becomes, because everything that's happened has happened before, we've seen this before. We get to where the book actually starts in verse 13. The true start of the book. The first bit is a prologue. And the teacher tells us of his quest for understanding. He says that he desires to understand all that is done under heaven. He says this is a heavy burden that God has laid on humanity, presumably the desire to understand, to comprehend the world that we live in. Part of to be human is to want to understand, to want to get a grip on things. it's It's a central characteristic of human society, to want to understand. He then says that he has seen all things done under the sun and all is heaven. Now, this is usually taken to mean that he's completed his search, he's decided to look at everything, he's now looked at everything, and here is his conclusions, with under the sun and under the heaven being taken to be synonyms, describing the same type of reality. Now, it's time for another confession. What I'm about to share with you, you will not find in any commentary. So if you, go, if you want to go and check this out with a commentary, as far as I know, nobody argues what I'm about to argue. So just, just warning you, okay? Okay. Uh, but this is a product of some very serious research and I can bore you senseless with it if you'd like to hear all of it, okay? My research suggests that something more subtle is going on here. Under the heaven in the Old Testament, always and only means God seeing creation from his perspective. It only ever means that. So most clearly in Job 28 uh, 28, verses 23 to 24, God understands the way to wisdom and he alone knows where it dwells for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under heavens. Why does God understand everything? Why does God have great wisdom? Why is he the source of the wisdom? Because he sees everything under the heavens. Okay? Okay? Now, That means that when he says, I want to desire everything under the heavens, what the teacher is saying is, I want to understand in a God-like capacity. I want to understand everything, like God does. His results, however, are not under the heaven. They are under the sun. A much more human perspective, which speaks of toil and sweat, and only being able to see in the available light. Under the heaven is used only three times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun is used 27 times, which suggests to me that they're not supposed to be describing the same thing. 
They're describing different ways of viewing reality. That means he has not successfully completed his quest and coming, come to a frustration conclusion. I wanted to see everything. I haven't been able to see everything. Sorry, I've seen everything and everything is heaven. That's not what he's saying. Rather, his quest itself has been frustrated. It's the difference between saying, I went to the bakery to buy a donut, but they'd run out of donuts and now I'm frustrated. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I went to the bakery, I couldn't find the bakery, I got lost, and so I have no idea whether there are any donuts. <laughs> this is a topic that is dear to my heart, <laughs> as you can probably tell. But it, it is really important that you get the distinction. It is a frustrated quest, not a completed quest with a frustrating answer. The very quest itself is frustrated. He has sought to understand like God, but he cannot. With all his human limitations, he can only see under the sun. Under the sun can carry no theological freight in Jewish thinking. Hope you're with me here. Whereas under the heavens clearly does carry theological freight. The issue is not that he didn't look hard enough. The issue is he's not God. That's the problem. You all with me so far? Okay, now, not everyone's going to travel with me here, but we're setting some stuff up here, okay? So it's really important that we're with me so far. Okay. From this, he concludes that everything is mist or vapour. And I would like to suggest to you that, therefore, the, the, the thing that's really in his mind here is you can't get a hold on it. It's ungraspable. That would be my favourite translation, but it's just a daggy word to use. And mist is so much better. You just can't get a hold on things. You can't fully understand. And it certainly fits well with the idea of chasing after the wind. Which is One of the interesting things is they translate meaningless, meaningless, but they don't try to translate chasing after the wind, which is obviously a natural description of something that's a bit odd to do. But you can do it, but it doesn't have much of a tangible outcome. And it also fits with the idea of him saying it's the fixed state of what it is. So in verse 13, that which is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I was saying that's just the way it is. All I can see is under the sun. I cannot see under the heavens. Okay? To quote Aerosmith, we're looking at the world in a different way and God knows it ain't his. They don't mean what I mean by that, but I always loved. I always thought it was a very clever line, so I've always tried to use it. Now, what is the source of this heaven? Why are things like this? We find the answer in part in that famous poem in chapter three. So, if you've got your Bibles, you might like to go to chapter three. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. Under heaven, notice. A time to a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. Uh, now, for those of us who take funerals, uh, we will know that that's a passage that's often read uh, at funerals uh, because people see sense, a sense of comfort in the settled order of things that seem to be there. But actually, the poem means exactly the opposite of that because what the poem is saying is, you think something's right? Well, it's going to be undone. You might think it's time to dance, but actually it's time to mourn. You might think that it's time to uproot, but actually it's time to plant and you don't know what time it is. That's what the poem's saying. It's not comforting. It's a poke in your eye. 
I don't say this at funerals because it's really not very sensitive. <laughs> you point them to Jesus and the resurrection. Um, but each pair cancels each other out, leaving the sense that nothing has been achieved. Absolutely nothing's been achieved. If you gathered stones, well, somebody's now throwing them. And we will see, as we read on, that may, may be a time somebody knows what time it is, but it's not us. For as you read on, we discover that this is like this because of God. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He knows what the time is. He knows what the beautiful time is. He's in control. But they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. He knows what time it is. We have no idea. We don't even know where the watch is. We've lost the diary and we have no access through Google Calendar to it. It's no wonder that verse 9 of chapter 3 is usually not read at funerals. It stops with the lovely comforting stuff and it ends with the question with which he started, what does a worker gain from all his toil? To which the answer is, well, nothing. Nothing seems to be being achieved. Why has God set it up this way? Why has God set it up that he knows what time it is, but we don't? Why does he do that? Well, in, again in chapter 3, towards the end, verses, uh, I think it's about 12, I know that everything God does will endure forever, yet nothing can be added, nothing can be taken from it. God does it. Now, sadly, many translations say so that men will revere him. I don't know what translations you have in front of them, but the word is just the good old-fashioned uh, Proverbs, fear him. So for those who know the book of Proverbs, what is the hot goal, the center, the start, the end of wisdom? Fear God. That's what wisdom is at its heart. God has set up the world so that we can't understand stuff, so we will fear him. So we will understand our limitations as humans. An appropriate response to our creator God is to recognize there's stuff he understands and we don't. And we won't ever understand them. God has put the knowledge of the eternal into humanity and wants them to seek after eternal things so that they will understand the mist of life, the hevel of life, and fear him. As long as humanity considers that it can understand the world on its own terms, they will never fear God. Note to the modern world. We think we can understand the world on our own terms and we don't fear God. And yet Hevel continues. When we understand or are impacted with the Hevel of life, which tends to happen at things like funerals, we are brought to uncomfortably being put in our own place. And it's in those places that we are likely to start fearing God. So it's common to see Ecclesiastes as aimed against an overly proud and materialistic society. Certainly the teacher gives us some uncomfortable truths about who we are and what we can achieve. If all is hevel, ungraspable, missed, then we need to recognise the ephemeral nature of our accomplishments and our possessions. They will slip through our fingers like mist. My 9,000 CDs will not come with me into eternity. 
and my wife will sell them at a shot when I drop dead. <laughs> but whatever you've collected, whatever you think is your achievement, it will pass. It will slip away from you. I've always been a collector. Probably the strangest thing I ever collected was as a child, I used to collect batteries. Stupid, I know. But I did. There were lots of different coloured ones and you could pick up the 9-volt ones and you know, it's hung. <laughs> That's that fun, isn't it? Um, I, I wasn't very bright as a child uh, and I kept uh, this uh, collection of batteries, quite a substantial collection of batteries, um, in a metallic box uh, under my bed and woke up one morning to discover that a quite extraordinary chemical reaction uh, had taken place as one battery failed and the goo uh, spread. Uh, of course, that shorted out all the other batteries, which also then uh, gooed, and then you can... The chain reaction, I hope you can see what happened. It went from being this lovely thing that I pull out and play with to being a biological chemical nightmare that was under my bed. Whatever your collection is, that's the future of it. <laughs> Useless. I want that to sit with you, because if that doesn't sit with you, you're not listening to Ecclesiastes. The message also forces us to face that it is also true about us. We are vapour. We are mist. We are not in control. We will fade away, soon to be forgotten by this world. You hear in the book of James, now listen you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist. I think James understood Ecclesiastes perfectly. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Ecclesiastes is a goad to smack you about the head and get you to listen to our own fragility. Feeling restful yet? It's an uncomfortable truth, but it puts us in our materialism in place. If I can speak also to church leaders here, we're not just talking about material wealth. I think we are also talking about what we think of in terms of ministry. If we think our ministry will last, we're in for a sad shock. Anyone who's been in ministry and moved on to another ministry may know the impact that changes will happen to that ministry. It can fall apart. People turn against each other. Many of you will know what the Anglican Church is going through at the moment with our redress scheme. The churches that are facing being sold were places that were once lively centres of worship in a community. They're being sold because they've been abandoned. All the work that was done in those places by faithful ministries the world will seem like mist. 
your Bible study group, your church, your ministry is also missed. It's not that doing something theological or spiritual saves you from this. And if we're honest, we will see it and we will know it's true. A great danger in the Christian church is we fool ourselves. If we think that our ministry is permanent and its growth will be ongoing, we are leading to great frustration and the great, the great possibility of terrible disappointment. Now, Ecclesiastes has also sometimes been taken as a book against atheism, that if you take God out of the equation, things don't make sense. Whilst that is obviously true, can I say, if you take God out of the equation, I don't think life makes any sense at all. Um, I, I cannot understand the new atheists who try to bring together a sense of ethics on the basis of, well, I feel like it. Well, I don't feel like it, so I'm going to kill you. It just doesn't make any sense. I, I, so I think, you know, bringing God into the equation helps bring a sense of meaning. But his problem, the teacher's problem, is not atheism. That's not his problem. His is the much more profound and worrying problem that he takes God into account and things still don't make sense. If you go through the book of Ecclesiastes and look for the words, this I know, everything the teacher says I know is an utterly orthodox piece of Jewish understanding of the world. He is a perfect orthodox believer. His problem is not atheism. His problem is the distinction between what he knows in his head and he sees in the world. Kind of like we're back to what Christoph started with. The distinction between what we know and what we see. He knows that God is a God of justice and a God of truth and a God of righteousness and everlasting, yet the world is full of lies, injustice and transience. He knows that God is sovereign, but the world looks like it's out of control. Belief in God is not the solution to Hevel. It's the cause of it. Please think that through before I move on. It is actually the belief in God which causes the problem. If you don't believe in a God, an unjust world causes no grief to you at all. It's what you'd expect. If you believe in a world that is created by evolutionary science and change, things that don't seem permanent should cause you no problem. The problem is what we believe and then what we see. It is that disjunction between our faith and our experience which is the cause of heaven. Is everybody with me? This is really important. You may not agree with me, that's okay. It's a shame, but it's okay. The teacher then is attacking trite religiosity. They, those who believe that by believing in God, your life will become under control and takes the general teaching of Proverbs as a promise that everything's going to be all right. I believe in God, so I know I'm going to be fine. Any Dream Theater fans here? I believe that life will go on because I believe. 
That's the end of the sentence. I just believe it's true and therefore it'll be true. Everything's going to be okay because I believe it. Whilst this may be eternally true, and I'm going to come to some happier things, whilst it may be eternally true, and in general things will work out if you follow God's wisdom. I once worked with a guy uh, who'd been an alcoholic um, and uh, I was talking to him about how his life was going and he said, I don't know about water into wine, but certainly God turned beer into furniture for me. Because as he followed God's way, he suddenly had money to be able to buy the things that he needed in life and to put his life back together. There are general things of wisdom that will bring you blessing if you follow them. But there are so many examples where it just does not work. Ecclesiastes teaches us that it is, is true and we should expect it. And it is true because we are not God. We do not understand like God understands. Religion is not a way of gaining control of your world, but of recognizing there is one who is far superior to us, whom we should rightly be in awe and reverent fear of. Can I say I think this is something we need to teach in our churches, which is why I'm passionate about this. Often religion, Christianity, is presented as a message that if you accept Jesus, then everything will work out and your life will have meaning. It's a, it's a, it's a, a teaching which is sometimes reinforced by safe, comfortable, middle-class churches. Now, I know we have lots of different types of churches here. But as Andrew told us before, what's seen on Sunday is often not what's actually going on behind the eyes and in the homes. It, we, we rarely state it, of course. We may not have a name it and claim it theology, but there is this essential optimism even though. At one level, it is true. In Christ, our eternal future is secure and we have a hope beyond this life and we have the enormous dignity of knowing that we are made in the image of God and that Christ has saved us to be his sons and daughters. Yet in giving the impression that in this life all will work out, we do an incredible disservice to our, believers, our fellow believers. For sooner or later, we run into heaven. Whether it be marital difficulties, a tragic death in the family, our own health, just the pressure of what seems to be a pointless cycle of activity that is modern life, I do not know why my wife suffers from debilitating, ongoing, seemingly chronic depression. And she walks. I don't know. I wish it was not so, as does she. Now, please don't feel sorry for me. There will be other people here who have similar kind of issues. But that is Hevel. And the problem is God because I believe in God, which means, how can it be like that? I just have to keep coming back to him. And the problem is the clash between our expectation and reality, for many people, shipwrecks their faith. They run into heaven, they'll say, nobody told me it was going to be like this, and so they jump ship. It's easy to get rid of God, and then there's no problem. We need to feel the sting of the teacher's words. We cannot avoid the heaven of life. To mix my metaphors, the rocks are real. Things will happen to us that we won't understand. 
And we need to recognize this is part of the life of faith, not as something that undermines it. I ultimately believe this is liberating because it means we do not have to ignore the pain of life but can embrace it. We need to not start beating ourselves up when we don't understand but rather, or trying to explain it. Rather, we can bring our lack of understanding to God. That is part of the purpose of Hebel. And our job at points of such crisis is, as the end of the book reminds us, simply fear God and keep his commandments. What's the end result of the book of Ecclesiastes? Whatever happens, fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to know, the, you know, don't read the rest of it, that's it. Whatever happens, trust God, fear God and keep his commandments, but don't expect your life to make sense. Keep living a life of faithful trust. Ungraspable, ungraspable, everything is ungraspable. It's an, un, it's an uncomfortable truth which forces us to think deeply about what we trust in and what we live for. Thanks be to God, though, of course, it's not the full story. For while we may not be able to get a hold on everything, something has got a hold on us. Our transcendent creator has reached down and there was something new under the sun when his son came down and called us his own. There is our security in all the mysteries and uncomfortable truths of life, simply that God loved us first. And such love, why God would do it is simply ungraspable. It is a mystery why God would do it. Yet thanks be to God, it may be ungraspable, but it has grasped us. Because of this, and while there may now be so many difficult and painful realities we do not understand, we can know that our labour in the Lord is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15. We may not be able to see how it will work out. We may not be able to see what the fruit of it is, but we can trust God that it is not in vain. But for now, all is heaven. For we look forward to the day when we will see God and there is no distinction between what we know and what we see when God's kingdom comes on earth and his will is done on earth as it, will, as it is now done in heaven. And on that glorious day, the mist will finally clear and we will no longer see under the sun but we will see under the Son of God. That's my introduction. <laughs> I told you I could go for a while. But is everybody with me so far? Okay? So I, 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 I'm sure there'll be somebody who wants to take me aside and put me straight on a few things and maybe I didn't take any happy pills this morning. Uh, but I really think that's what the, the Word of God is telling us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay? So... I move on to my much shorter main point. <laughs> and, and, and this really is a confession, okay? It's a confession why there isn't actually a main point, uh, why there is no end to this book, uh, end to this um, sermon or this address. Uh, I, I've had a very busy week. I don't know about you, but I've been very hectic. I've been up in Sydney for much of the past week at a National Dean's Conference, and there was so much eating and drinking that had to be done. It's part of the program. 
Uh, I had to fit my normal workload of a week into two days when I got back from Sydney. I'm starting a new sermon series at the cathedral tomorrow on the book of Exodus, which seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, I'm about to lose my PA and I'm trying to do some uh, work in terms of uh, uh, recruitment. Uh, I'm uh, about to do this important address and last night was my wedding anniversary, uh, which required some preparation. So time has been really tight. And I really wanted to finish this book as I was reading in preparation for this, The Heavenly Good of Earthly Work by Daryl uh, Cosden, I, I'd flicked it open. It's one of the uh, where's Phil? It's a book I brought for three dollars from Kurong in the uh, bargain section. Um, uh, so I don't know if there's any. There probably aren't any copies over there. And I, I had a look at it, and it, it, it started with a quote from Ecclesiastes. So I thought it might have something to say. It raised the issue of what do we gain from all our toil. Uh, I remember a conversation that I was having uh, with a man, uh, and he just sort of. It's amazing what happens when you. I, I wear a dog collar normally. I was told not to wear it today. It's, it stops me from scratching. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I normally uh, wear a dog collar, and you have some amazing conversations uh, with people. Uh, if you've never done this, and you're at a party and um, uh, you're having a conversation with them, and somebody and uh, somebody says, "What do you do?" Just try saying, "Oh, I'm an Anglican priest." <laughs> Things change remarkably. <laughs> when you say that. Anyway, uh, when I'm uh, in my dog collar, I was talking to somebody, he just volunteered to me uh, that we are all working too much, we do too much, and we don't particularly enjoy life. There's a great opening sentence for a conversation. Oh, well, you can't help but agree, really, it's true. Uh, I could have done some internet research, as Andrew did, to have some statistics to back this up, uh, about how working hours have dramatically increased over the past 20 years and life satisfaction has gone down, but that sounded like just more work in the midst of an already busy week, so I didn't do it. Uh, slow down, you're moving too fast, says Simon and Garfunkel, and rarely has a culture so wholeheartedly ignored a piece of wise advice. Uh, we live in a busy, if not manic, acquisitive society, all looking for a sense of achievement and security uh, and, and seeking to get hold of things to make us feel secure. And I thought as I put this together, you know, Ecclesiastes has something to say into this culture and society, and I need to speak about it on the weekend and looking what we can achieve from our toil and do we actually achieve anything from all our busyness, but I'd have to think about that later because I had to get on with my work before I could get to do the talk. Now, when I had a moment, I opened up Ecclesiastes 2, and there we find the teacher setting out on another quest for understanding. So back in chapter 1, he's done, he's done a quest for understanding, and it was a frustrated quest. Well, in chapter 2, uh, he starts a second quest, and notice it's again under the heavens. Come now, I will twist, test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. This also was mist. I said, laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine... Dean's conference, my heart still guiding with wisdom and lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven. Okay, that's, he's setting himself out on another quest. He wants to test what is good, what is good for us to do under heaven. There, uh, and uh, it made me think of Genesis 1 where God looks at all that he has made under heavens and he looks at it and says, it is all good saw that all he had made and it was good. God finds satisfaction in his work. This again, as I say, fits well with the understanding I put to you before about under heaven being looking at the world from God's point of view. The teacher dismisses pleasure and laughter as mist and he sets out on a massive building project. Uh, interestingly, there are lots of ties between what the teacher does and what God did in the early chapters of Genesis. They are both gardens with trees. 
He populates those gardens with males and females. They go forth and multiply. He is obviously very busy and he finds that he enjoys his work. There, there is some reward in his labour. But finally the teacher looks at all his work, looking for what is good and what is worthwhile. And he says it's all missed. There's nothing been achieved under the sun. Again, we can see that he's, uh, he sought to understand under the heaven, but his conclusions are under the sun. And in that light, all is missed. From all his toil, nothing has been gained. So then I thought, well, what's his problem? He's rich, he has fame, he's got a harem. But as I read on, I discover his answer is death. Chapter 2, verse 14. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. It doesn't matter how wise you are or stupid you are. Death is ahead of you. He's been searching by wisdom, looking for universal understanding, but his fate is the same as that of any old fool. Wisdom may be better than foolishness, The wise man can see while a fool walks in darkness, but the same future awaits them both. There's still a cliff at the end of the path, whichever way you're going. More distressing, not only is death inevitable, but both the fool and the wise man will soon be forgotten. I was starting to think, I'm not going to be able to make a very encouraging talk out of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all a bit depressing. It's depressing, but it's true. And another occasion when I was in my dog collar, I found myself talking to an oncologist. And I said, oh, it's a bit tough, isn't it? You know, you, know, you have to sell people who've got cancer. And he said, yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll tell them they've got cancer. And their response almost always is, doctor, are you, are you telling me I'm going to die? And he said that his response to that was, well, actually, that was true before I told you you had cancer. <laughs> now, we may question his bedside manner, But it's perfectly true. Rich, poor, wise, foolish, young, old, those with doctorates, those without. Death is there before us all and most of us will be forgotten. Uh, In my cathedral, we have plaques all over the place and I don't mean the kind of stuff you get dentists to come along and remove, (laughs) although that would be kind of useful. Um... There's plaques everywhere, and, and I, I, I asked people once, how many people know anybody on any of the plaques or know anything about them? Nobody knew anything about any of the people apart from a couple of bishops. The plaques were put there to maintain a memory of them, but nobody remembers them at all. We had a, we had a picture of a guy in the vestry, that's where we go in to get changed, and I ask everybody who comes in, who is that guy? Nobody knows who the guy is. But he did something in 1960 at the cathedral and got a picture put there. All that we are, all our effort and all our toil will be forgotten and fade away. All this is true and it means that all we achieve, all the effort we put into our lives, our work, death will take them all away from us and we will be forgotten. In which case, have we achieved anything and it's all missed. All that we think we can lay hold on will slip from our grasp. I was certainly feeling like an end to my talk was slipping beyond my grasp. 
As I read on, I see that not only was he annoyed that anything he'd achieved be taken away from him, but that it would go to another and he would have no control of it and the next person might be a complete idiot. Who knows what fool is going to get access to my stuff? Think about some of the ways in which money has been flitted away. I mean, can you imagine being Donald Trump and thinking Donald Jr.? Actually, can you imagine being Donald Trump's... Actually, let's not go there any further. But who's going to know what will happen to all that money? I thought it's rather ironic that this is being said by... We're supposed to have Solomon in our mind as we read the book of Ecclesiastes. He built the kingdom of Israel up to its glorious pinnacle. And what happens next? (laughs) Utter catastrophe. As his son blows the lot on a bit of hubris. The entire nation has led him to ruin, division and decline by his son. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. Sorry, it's my son over there, just in case anybody wonders. I'm not, I'm not clearing it, Andrew. This too is missed and a great misfortune. Death and a lack of control means that nothing we achieve lasts. Not a cheery thought as I tried to labour on about hard about a talk. What's it going to achieve? I can do the greatest talk in the world. What's it going to achieve? Is anyone going to remember it? Is it actually any good? Will there be a little plaque up to... <laughs> the Dean of Hobart was here once. He spoke about something we thought it was good. Most importantly, uh, we need to see that... that I, know, I, thought, I thought maybe we could focus on showing how this would change our thinking about our work and our achievements and see them in a different light, that we're not to think of them being as more important than they are. In the end, they are missed. They will slip beyond our grasp. But actually, I told you that already, so that wasn't going to be the end. I needed to have some other kind of ends, and I was starting to really regret choosing to speak on Ecclesiastes because this talk was just never going to end. Then I came upon the rather surprising verse 24 of chapter 2. And a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? This does not sound like the teacher that we assume that we are used to hearing. Uh, who has been so depressed moments before, but he has realised that while he had not achieved anything in his toil, there had been a reward in it. And the reward was the enjoyment of it and the rest that he had afterwards. The enjoyment was what he had achieved in his toil. A bit like what uh, Andrew was telling us before about, uh, there's one big word beginning with E, effort, Reward, satisfaction. The satisfaction is the satisfaction you get from doing the work. That's the reward that we get from our toil. This was something that could not be taken away from him. It was God's gift to him. And he had enjoyed his work and he had enjoyed his rest. And it was good. 
I then flicked through and found other passages in this supposedly depressing book that encouraged the enjoyment of life, perhaps best captured in chapter 8, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Bet you don't think of that when you think of Ecclesiastes. But it's there. He goes on, Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life. God has given him under the sun. Keep hearing the under the sun. If you really don't believe my previous argument, please keep hearing the under the suns in these sentences. I realize this was not the eat, drink and be merry that the New Testament condemns. That is an attitude that cuts us off from God. Rather, the teacher is encouraging a lifestyle that it recognizes that the good things in life are there for us to enjoy. God has given them to us. To do so is God's will and we should be grateful for the rest and enjoyment that we can have in the midst of our toils. This is not advertising carpe diem. It's not seize the day. We shouldn't all be getting up on our desks and saying, Captain, my captain. Gosh, really? None of you are big fans? Thank you, thank you. Come on! Work with me here. It was not to go out and look for fun and excitement. The teacher would surely say that was missed, ungraspable, and most of you will know that when you've gone out really determined to have a good time. Does that ever work? Not in my experience. It's when you don't expect to have fun. Like, now I'm enjoying myself. (laughs) If you go out looking for fun, it's ungraspable, it won't work. But having a humble gratitude of, of service means that we should be grateful when enjoyment comes our way. Death is still inevitable and our achievements may be missed, but we can still enjoy life. And indeed, the more we understand the true nature of our existence, the better position we are, to, we are in, uh, in to enjoy the good things of life. Because we understand the things that we work for are, to- are missed. They'll go beyond our grasp. We need to stop and enjoy the good things that God has given to us. I thought, no, now I'm getting towards an end to the talk getting my head around something here. Having this perspective enables us to be more realistic about our attitude to work and the things that we can achieve and its value. And we can place a greater value on the simple pleasures of eating and drinking and spending time with our family and friends and enjoying what we do rather than being driven by the outcome of what we do. Now I was getting somewhere. So there's still a lot of work to do because I really wanted to make this a good talk and uh, for those who are coming out today, I really wanted it to be a good talk and I still had the Exodus sermon to do and I still hadn't finished the book. (laughs) I reflected on how Jesus lived this out. Uh, You often read about Jesus eating and drinking and enjoying himself, so much so that he could be accused of being a drunkard and a glutton and when he's accused of that, he doesn't say, you've got me wrong. He accepts the statement. Now, please don't hear me saying Jesus is a drunken and glutton. Please don't go out and get a T-shirt that says that, although it's biblical. You'd have to put it in quotes and stuff. But Jesus was someone who was known to hang out with people and enjoy being with people and enjoy meals with people. He compared heaven to sitting in a church singing boring songs and having a polite morning tea afterwards. No, how does he describe, what's the most common view of heaven? Come on, go beyond a meal. Even more than a, it's a party. 
The good Samaritan, not the good Samaritan, the, um, the other one, the prodigal son. It's about a party, and when the images are, are, are ones of eating and drinking and enjoying, those are the images that we get about heaven. You know, have you ever thought people gave up their entire day to spend a day with Jesus, and and didn't come with food? Right? We we sort of have this idea that Jesus went around being, yes, bless you and bless you, son, and he must have been so interesting and enjoyable to be with. He, he was someone who, that people wanted to be around. He embraced the life that he had and he enjoyed it. More than that, he called on people to come to him and rest. We Christians believe in a religion of rest, but sometimes we're busier than everybody else because we fill our weekends with stuff. We can be so busy doing things for God that we don't stop to remember the things that he's done for us. God, Ecclesiastes teaches us, and Jesus shows us, thinks it is good when we stop and enjoy life and take the time to stop and smell the roses. It is his gift to us that we enjoy our life. Right, I thought, now, how do I apply this? I'm really getting towards an end to this talk. In some of the grim and uncomfortable realities of life, how can I help people to enjoy the good things that God provides for them to do? Well, I was working really hard on that idea when I thought, really, I need to apply it to myself first. I can't preach it to you if I don't apply it to myself. If I don't try to enjoy the life that I have. And this is where my confession comes in. I didn't write an end to the talk. I just stopped. Threw away the book. Wasn't going to finish that. Spent some time with my daughter who went to Melbourne yesterday for the weekend. I took my wife out to a lovely meal uh, in Battery Point yesterday. We watched three episodes of Bones afterwards. (laughs) And they say romance is dead. (laughs) We went to bed earlier than we have for days and it was good. And God would think it was good too. So that's why there's no end to this talk. Just the confession of a workaholic who wants others to know, as the teacher found, there's nothing better for men than to to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. For this is the gift of God.